Well, good evening, everybody. Uh, thank you for coming along. Can I wish you all uh, a very happy Easter? I hope that you've all eaten far too much chocolate today. Um, I have three Easter eggs and a lint bunny on my kitchen counter that I haven't opened yet, and I can't wait to get stuck into them once I get home, so I'm not planning to keep you for too long tonight. But we're going to spend a short time this evening thinking about the aftermath of Easter, about what happened after the Lord Jesus Christ rose from the dead. So we're going to think about this topic in the book of Acts, and we're going to be reading from Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 6. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, we're at page 909. Acts chapter 1 and verse 6. This happened 40 days after the resurrection. So when they had come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up, and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven as he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken up from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day journey away. Whenever someone mentions Easter to me, one of the first things that comes into my head is Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. The film versions of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory are on TV every single Easter without fail. I love Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. I don't mind admitting this, but to this day, it is one of my all-time favorite books. You'll all know the story. It's about a boy called Charlie Bucket. And Charlie Bucket and his family are very poor. He lives in a tiny wooden house with his parents and his grandparents. They're so poor that all four of his grandparents have to sleep in the same bed. Charlie doesn't have very much going for him. Until one day, he opens a Wonka chocolate bar and finds a golden ticket inside. A ticket that entitles him to a very exclusive tour of Willy Wonka's chocolate factory. The most famous chocolate factory in the whole world. He's one of only five lucky children who get the chance to look around. And of course, Charlie is the only child left standing at the end. The rest of them meet a very unfortunate demise. And at the end of the book, not only does Charlie find himself with a lifetime supply of chocolate, which would be my dream come true, but Mr. Wonka decides that he is going to give the entire factory to Charlie. And just like that, Charlie's life will never be the same again. And that is where Roald Dahl ends the story. On this huge crescendo. But once you've read the last page, you are dying to know how it changes all of their lives. You're just dying to know what happens next. And what happens next 
was very much on the minds of the disciples at the beginning of Acts chapter 1. The Lord Jesus had been crucified. He'd suffered a horrible death. He'd been buried. The tomb had been sealed up. But now he was alive again. God had raised him back from the dead. Now, we're thinking this morning about what Christ's resurrection means for us whenever we put our trust in him, that we are raised up into new life as well. We are dead in our sins, but we can be made alive in Christ. The resurrection means that all of us can have eternal life if we ask Christ to forgive our sins and to come into our hearts and lives. The resurrection changed everything. Nothing would ever be the same again. So the big question for the disciples, now that he was risen, was the question, what happens now? What is going to happen next? What does this new reality mean for the future? And from what Acts chapter 1 tells us, they had very high hopes for the future. Their hopes had crumbled whenever he was taken and nailed to the cross. They had hoped that he would be the one who would save Israel that he was the Messiah that the Old Testament prophets spoke about, who would set up an everlasting kingdom where God's people would prosper. And when he died, that seemed to be the end of that. But the resurrection proved beyond any doubt that he truly was the one. He was the Son of God. There was nothing that he couldn't do. There was no problem too big for him to solve. And Israel's biggest problem at this time was the Roman Empire. The Roman Empire were the dominant world power. They were the ones who were in control. They gave the Jews a lot of leeway, but they weren't really free. And that was never God's intention for Israel. He gave them their land as an inheritance. It was always meant to be theirs and theirs alone. So every Jew was waiting for the Messiah to come and sweep their enemies away and bring them national sovereignty, which had happened several times during the Old Testament. They were tired of living under Roman rule. They were sick of paying taxes to Caesar. They were fed up with all the decrees and all the laws. So whenever the disciples were all together on the Mount of Olives, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? You can almost hear the anticipation in their voice. Are you going to do it now? Are you going to get rid of them for us? Are you going to put us back in charge? Are you going to sort everything out for us? Since he rose again, he had been talking to them about the kingdom of God. And they expected that he would set up a political and national kingdom right then and there. But instead of that, he said to them, It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. In other words, it's not going to happen now. It wasn't God's time. And their hearts must have sank when he said those words. They had been riding an emotional roller coaster over those past weeks, from hope to despair to fear, back to hope again and now disappointment. Christ had been teaching them all sorts of things over those 40 days. He had been preparing them for his departure. He had been preparing them for the coming of the Holy Spirit. But they still didn't seem to truly understand that he was talking about God's kingdom in a spiritual sense. 
One day it will come physically. But this wasn't the time. We all know what it's like to hope that the Lord will fix some problem in our lives. We all know what it's like to hope that he will step in and intervene. Maybe you've been hoping that God will do something for you. Maybe you're having money problems. Maybe you're struggling to pay the mortgage and provide for your family. Maybe you've wanted to start a family, but it hasn't happened yet. And you've been praying that the Lord will make it possible for you. You've been praying, Lord, will you please sort this problem out for me? I need your help. The disciples felt the same way. But what they had asked for wasn't going to happen then. Because right in front of their eyes, he was taken back into heaven. They probably didn't even realize that this was going to be the last time when they were going to see him. Over those 40 days, every time he had left them, he had reappeared again. But this time was very different. He was lifted right out of the world altogether. He was ascending back to his father permanently. He wasn't going to be with them anymore. They had only just got him back again. And now, he was leaving them for good. They stood there stunned. Their eyes fixed to the sky, watching this amazing sight. They couldn't even speak. They just stood transfixed, looking and longing. And they must have wondered, why couldn't he stay for longer? There are so many things in the world that need to be sorted out. That might be how you feel. Because maybe those money problems haven't got any better. They're getting worse. Maybe the hope of having a family of your own is starting to give way to a slow resignation that it may never happen for you. Maybe, however long and hard you've prayed, the illness hasn't gone away. Or maybe it's come back. Living in the reality of the resurrection, in the light of a new spiritual life, might not have made life any easier for you in the here and now. You might even have caught yourself feeling as though Christ has left you to it. He has disappeared from view, and your eyes are fixed to the sky in disappointment and uncertainty, wondering what's going to happen next. Well, take encouragement from Acts chapter 1. Take encouragement that he hasn't just left you to it. Acts 1 tells us that there are three things he has left his disciples with. He's left us with his purpose. He's left us with his power. And he's left us with his promise. Firstly, he's left us with his purpose. He said, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Right before he went to heaven, he commissioned these people to be his witnesses in Israel and across the whole globe. Those were his final words to them. Those words would ring in their ears for the rest of their lives. That their life's work now was to go and tell people what they had seen and heard about Jesus. God's kingdom wasn't coming yet physically. But they had to get on 
with working for his kingdom spiritually. And it wasn't only the mission of those first disciples standing on the Mount of Olives. Christ's great commission would be for every single disciple down throughout history, right down to you and me, right here in Crescent Church. This is our mission. This is our purpose, to make disciples, to make disciples in our home, in our local community, in our country, and across the world. You might not feel like you have any purpose in life. You might be floating through life without any clear direction. You might be longing for a purpose tonight. You might be longing for something to give you a sense of meaning and value. But wherever you look, whether it's in the right job or the right relationship, you're struggling to find it. Or you might have lost your sense of purpose. Maybe your purpose used to be defined by a career that has now come to an end or a position that now belongs to someone else or by a family that has grown up and left home. Some older believers here might yearn for those days when your purpose was clear. But listen to the Lord's words. You will be my witness. Your purpose is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Not in your job, not in your career, not in your talents, not in your abilities. You have been gifted an amazing salvation and an amazing message. The most important purpose you could ever hope for is to take the Lord Jesus Christ to people who need him to people who are lost. That is a purpose with value for all of eternity. And that is why he has left us here, in a world that's full of problems and difficulties, to bring his light into the darkness. But you might be sitting here thinking, that's very hard to do in a society like this, in this kind of climate that we live in. Many Christians here were fortunate enough to grow up in a society that was much more tolerant of the gospel than it is now. But when you see how things have squeezed down over the last few decades, you're almost afraid to open your mouth in case you get yourself into trouble. You found yourself part of a culture that you don't recognize, a culture that you have no idea how to engage with as a Christian. And it might be tempting for you to give up on witnessing to society altogether just to batten down the hatches until the Lord returns. Well, that has never been his purpose for his people. I'm sure most of us remember our first day at school. And on my first day at the Thompson Primary School in Bally Robert, when I was five years old, my mum walked me into my classroom. The teacher said hello and took me over to my desk. And as soon as mum said goodbye and turned to leave, apparently this is what I said to her. I said, Mom, I'm just going to sit here and wait for you to come back. I don't remember saying that, but Mom promises I did. I'm just going to wait for you to come back. I didn't want her to leave me. And I didn't want to engage with school. 
I was completely outside my comfort zone. I was surrounded by all these new people, and I was going to have to do all kinds of things that I'd never done before, and it would be hours and hours and hours until I went home again. So I probably spent that whole first day gazing at the classroom door, waiting for her to walk back in. And I completely missed the purpose of being there. Our purpose is not to gaze off into heaven, but to go into all the world. It's not that we don't focus on heaven. We are citizens of heaven. Paul says that we're seated with Christ in the heavenly places. The only way to live as a Christian is to look unto Jesus in faith. Our eyes should always be on Christ because he is our supreme example. But we fix our eyes on him so that we can actively live out his purpose in the world. And yes, it can be scary. But if it's scary for us, just imagine the society that the apostles witnessed to. They had to go to the very people who had crucified the Lord and tell them that he was alive and that they had to repent and believe in him or they were in danger of hell. It was very very dangerous. But they didn't choose to stay on the Mount of Olives. They didn't take the easy way out. They chose to fulfill his purpose, whatever the cost. And each of us have to make that same decision, don't we? Let Christ's final words ring in your ears tonight. And if you don't feel like you have the strength or the ability to carry it out, don't worry, because Neither did the apostles. The apostles had help. And that's the second thing that Christ has left us with. He hasn't only left us with a purpose. He's also left us with the power to carry out that purpose. He said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. The Lord Jesus was going back to his Father. But the other member of the Godhead was now coming to earth. A few days later, his spirit was coming to be the helper of the church. And from the moment that he came, the apostles went out in power proclaiming the Lord Jesus. The Holy Spirit is the engine that drives our commission. We can't do it. We can't carry it out unless we're relying on the Holy Spirit inside of us. But what kind of power does he give us? Well, first of all, he gives us power to share the gospel. Peter is probably the best example. The disciple who had abandoned and denied the Lord because he was afraid. Well, the moment the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost, Peter was given the power and the authority to stand up in front of a huge crowd and tell them about Christ. And we're told that 3,000 people were saved that day. Maybe you have a neighbor or a colleague at work that God has been encouraging you to speak to, but you're afraid. You're afraid of how they might react. If you're willing to be led by the Spirit, if you're willing to speak when he wants you to speak, he is the one who will give you the power and the authority and the wisdom to know what to say, and to know how to say it. Why don't you make a commitment this week to approach just one person about the Lord Jesus? Just one person. 
Ask the Lord to lead you to the right person and to, say, to help you to say the right thing to them, or even to give them a piece of gospel literature, or even to invite them along to one of the services. You don't need to go out preaching on the streets or stand in front of a crowd. Start small and see what he does. He gives us the power to share Christ. And he also gives us power in our personal lives. He gives us power in our personal lives to live for him. He doesn't want us just to be a verbal witness. He also wants us to be a visible witness so that we don't just talk the talk, we also walk the walk. I might be speaking to a younger Christian tonight who is struggling with sin and you've tried to conquer it, but no matter what you do, it's too strong for you. You can't pull away from that temptation, whatever it might be. And that temptation and that sin is getting in the way of your witness. Well, the thing is, it might be too strong for you, but it's not too strong for the Holy Spirit. Whenever we are powerless over sin, He gives us the power and He gives us the victory to live holy lives. But that only happens whenever we surrender ourselves to Him. Whenever we let the Spirit have his way in our lives. Paul calls that living by the Spirit, putting to death the deeds of the body, not allowing sin to get any kind of foothold in our life. And that is so important because a clean witness on the outside is a more powerful witness than just what we say because it proves that what we say about the gospel is true. So if you're struggling tonight, Why don't you pray very simply at the start of every day, Lord, I surrender to you. Lord, I want to live for you. I want my witness to match up to my words. If we cooperate with his spirit, he gives us power over sin. And the Holy Spirit also gives us all sorts of gifts to achieve our purpose in Christ. 1 Corinthians says that every believer is given a manifestation of his spirit for the common good. He gives Christians different abilities to empower their ministry and to make it effective. It might be the gift of preaching or evangelism. It might be the gift of teaching or the ability to explain the Bible to children. It might be a practical gift, working with your hands, or it might be a musical gift or an artistic gift. Don't ever worry that God has left you to do this all by yourself. He has given you all of the resources that you need. Can I encourage you to find the gift that God has given you? If you don't know what that gift is, ask him to show you. And then can I encourage you to use it? Don't keep it to yourself. That gift is his tool for your witness. If you're good at craft, You could use that gift in rally. If you're good at cookery, you might be able to use it on the catering team. If you're good at engaging with people, you might be able to get involved in outreach work. If you're good at building, you could help out on a mission team. Whatever your gift, God can make use of it in ways that you don't even realize. So identify what that gift is and ask God for opportunities. And finally, the Holy Spirit gives us power whenever we're weak. He gives us power when we feel like we can't go on. Romans 8 says that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, in sickness, 
and frustration and sadness, whatever we go through. You might be spending every day missing a loved one who's gone on to be with the Lord. Life just isn't the same. You're looking off into heaven, longing for the day when you'll be with them again. He can give comfort and he can give power to keep going. And not only to keep going, but to glorify God. Maybe to help someone else understand that in Christ, you have a hope that transcends death itself. You can be a witness even in weakness. And never forget that he is walking that road with you. He will never abandon you. God is dwelling in your heart right now, as near to you as it is possible to be. Christ was abandoned by his God on Calvary whenever he bore your sin. He was abandoned by his God so that you would never be. And his spirit is your guarantee of an eternal glory. He is the assurance that these things won't last forever. Because thirdly, Christ hasn't only left us with a purpose, and he hasn't only left us with the power to carry it through, he's also left us with his promise that Christ is coming back. The moment he ascended into heaven, we're told that two angels came and stood beside these uncertain disciples and said to them, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus, who was taken from you into heaven, will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. One day, he's coming back. One day, he is going to sort everything out. All the wrongs are going to be made right. Revelation 21 assures us that whenever we're taken to be with God, he will wipe away every tear. There will be no mourning or crying or pain anymore. What an amazing comfort for those of us who are suffering. That all of these things will pass. I'm sure that what got me through that first day at school was the promise that mum made the moment that she walked out the door. When she turned around to me and said, it's okay, I'll be back again later. Christ's coming again should be the hope and the comfort of all of us. But it should also challenge us. It should also be our incentive to tell people that they need a savior while we still can. Because when he comes back again, it's going to be too late. When the disciples heard that promise, they took it seriously. It not only encouraged them, and not only helped them to keep going, and not only gave them something to look forward to, it also gave them the urgency to live for the Lord. They didn't know when he would be back. It spurred them on to work hard, to live out the reality of the resurrection. I wonder, are we living with that same urgency? We don't know when he'll be back any more than they did. Let's pause for a moment as we close and ask ourselves 
that question. Why do you stand looking into heaven? Let's take this seriously. Let's get on with God's work. So, what happens next? He's risen. He's ascended. And he's coming again. If you haven't believed in him for yourself, now is the time to put your trust in him. Now is the time to accept that he died for you and that he rose again. Now is the time to receive a whole new life. And if you have done that, now is the time to take up his purpose and his power, encouraged and inspired by his promise that he's coming back. Not gazing passively into heaven, but going into all the world so that people's lives can be changed forever by the risen Christ. May the Lord help each of us to fulfill his great commission.